Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Our topic, Jesus' disciples stand gazing at the sky as the Lord ascends into heaven. The title of our message, Sky Witnesses. was either that or staring all the way to heaven. <laughs> or gazed and confused. <laughs> or men in white. <clears throat> Verse nine, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful to be here this morning and to gather together as your people with those that we love and have come to love as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we're thankful, Lord, that scattered in our audience are perhaps unbelievers, those who are here to be exposed by your Holy Spirit to the glorious good news that Jesus loves them, died for them, rose from them, and is in heaven preparing a place for them if they would but give their hearts to him. Take these words, Lord, and may they be the words that we need to hear this morning, no matter where we're at, no matter who we are. We trust you, Lord, to do a great, a deep work in each and every heart. And we pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Jesus could have gone home to heaven in some other way could have simply vanished from their sight. He'd been doing that on and off for the past 40 days. Instead, he ascended slowly, very dramatically, taken up into heaven. Jesus was now in heaven while his disciples were left on the earth. He had begun a work, Luke said earlier. They would now continue it. Among other things, the ascension was therefore symbolic. We can describe it in terms of Jesus' body. The body of Jesus, which began both to do and to teach, went to heaven to make way for the body of Jesus that would continue both to do and teach. It was a mystery that was not yet fully revealed to his disciples, but they would come to understand that the followers of Jesus on the earth during his absence are his spiritual body. He is the head directing us from heaven, we are his members on the earth carrying out his will. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus ascended and sits in his physical body in heaven. And number two, Jesus ascended and sends his spiritual body throughout the earth. First of all, in verse nine, Jesus ascended and sits in his physical body in heaven. I wanna take a moment just to be awestruck by the thought that Jesus, who from eternity past was fully God, not only took upon himself a human body, 
but will remain in that glorified human body for all eternity. Have you ever thought about that? Have you thought about that recently? He will forever remain the God-man, fully God and fully human. I don't begin to understand what it means to exist as God, but I'm pretty safe in assuming that it is something greater than even a glorified humanity. And yet our Lord chose not only to become a man to save us, he chose to remain man for eternity in his love for us. What a wonderful savior we have, what a blessed Lord. Any thought that we ever have that he has abandoned us, that he's left us, that he's forsaken us because of the circumstances of our life should immediately be rejected whenever we think of him risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, waiting to receive us there. Now his ascension into heaven is an event of real importance on many levels. It's so important that the Holy Spirit inspires the writers of the Bible to mention it in the Gospel and in Acts at least 20 different times using 13 different words and expressions to describe it. Here in our passage in Acts, it is presented in few but elegant words. We know from verse 12 that they were in the vicinity of Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives, excuse me. Probably only the 11 apostles were on hand to receive these final instructions. They certainly did not realize that the Lord was leaving for heaven until he lifted off. Verse nine, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Hold in your mind the things that Jesus had spoken to them. They were to wait in Jerusalem until they received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, they would be witnesses to him all over the earth. They watched, and as we'll see, it, it was with some fear that they were losing his presence. And as they watched, Jesus was taken up, and it seems that he was taken up rather slowly, very deliberately, and very publicly. It suggests that others could have seen it, but like so many other events, they missed it. For example, the birth of Jesus Christ. The Magi came from the east searching for the king of the Jews. When Herod inquired of the Jewish scholars where the child was to be born, they answered without hesitation that it would be in Bethlehem. These scholars who knew where their Messiah would be born, nevertheless were not looking for him to come and they were not there when he was born. They missed it. Jesus was born, he lived, he ministered, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. Most people still go on with their lives missing these events when they could be impacted by them for all eternity. Let's say you're getting ready to come here to second service this morning, you're loading into your car and your neighbor's out mowing his lawn and he says to you, where are you going? I'm going to church. What happens there? We learn about a resurrected man who is in a glorified human body, fully God and fully man, who can forgive your sins and grant you eternal life. Now, shouldn't you turn off your lawnmower, get in the car, and come check that out? I know you only have Sunday to mow your lawn, but I mean, you know, you get what I'm saying. This is true. I mean, we believe, you know, uh, the majority of us are believers here this morning. We've been born again. We've experienced this tremendous transformation of life because there is a risen living Lord. And yet the vast majority of people in the world go on as if it has no impact on them. 
When Jesus returns in his second coming, everyone will be impacted by it, whether they are looking for it or not. We'll read a scripture this morning that talks about how every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so though these things have happened and people ignore it, there's coming a time that they will not be able to ignore. Now the mention of the cloud wasn't a weather forecast. It wasn't just an overcast day in Jerusalem. And on the Mount of Olivets today, there was a cloud, cloud cover, unusual cloud cover, but uh, it quickly broke. You know, I mean, back to you, Rabbi. You know, I don't know. I mean, we seem fascinated by the weather, you know, the weather at the top of the hour on the radio, you know, at 10, 2, and 4, you know, weather, weather, weather. You're in the weather. You know what the weather is. And, the, you know, the only thing you really ever need to know around here is whether you can get over the grapevine or not, right? I mean, that's, and that's a road report. It's not a weather report. And yet we're fascinated. Try and get through one day without talking about the weather. I've challenged you on this before. It can't be done. It's impossible. People draw you in. They suck you in. And then you, next thing you know, you, you're saying, yeah, it is cold. Or, well, yeah, but last year, you know. <laughs> talking about global warming and all this stuff. Who cares about the weather? By the way, we tied our all-time record low inside our house. <laughs> we, we like it cold in our house for various reasons and uh, kills germs for one thing and I'm kind of a germaphobe, but uh, no, that's not true. But we do like it cold. We usually don't turn our heater on at night uh, at all. And so our record low is 46 degrees inside the house and we've never gotten colder than that. And, uh, but we hit that again this year uh, and so I'm very proud. It, so, and I think we're probably gonna have to wait till next year to try for 45, but uh, anyway, it's so fun. Now we have a tile floor in our bedroom and man, it's, uh, there's some cold stuff going on at our house, but germs, no, there are no germs at our house whatsoever. They're all dead. Okay, anyway, the cloud that received him out of their sight is the cloud in the Old Testament that represented the presence of the glory of God. It was the cloud that hovered over the children of Israel by day as they wandered through the wilderness. And what a, and pun intended, cool thing that was when you're out in the desert and your cloud cover. And then when the cloud moved, they moved. That's when you need some weather forecasting to go on, you know. Cloud moving. Pick up stakes and follow the cloud. Pillar of fire at night, cloud by day. And then it was the cloud that filled the tabernacle and later the temple. It's called the Shekinah, this cloud that visibly represented the presence of the glory of God. Jesus ascended and from our point of view, he was gone. But note that it says the cloud received him. And I was thinking that obviously from heaven's point of view, the cloud was the beginning of a reception into heaven. I wish we had the details of that event. Some of you have planned receptions or big events, you know, where you know, something exciting is happening and, and this is the most amazing, triumphant, jubilant ceremony and celebration uh, uh, maybe of all time up to that point. The Son of God, fully God who had you know, become man and lived on the earth and, and, and all of that entailed as the angels watched and heaven just, in a sense, scratched its head thinking, what is going on here? And, and then Jesus Christ dying on the cross in the tomb, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, now returning home. I mean, you're talking party. 
you know, noisemakers, hats, the whole thing, you know. Angels, you know, they know how to kill people and they know how to party. I, I mean, that they, I mean, you know, if one angel can kill 185,000 Assyrians, they can throw quite a party, you know. They've got the record player going and the whole thing, you know. I don't know what they did, but imagine, I mean, heaven's a glorious place. You read about it, you know, and, and, and just, I mean, if you think Jesus just, you know, Ah, Dad, I'm home, you know. I mean, something glorious took place when Jesus was received into heaven. It's a place of ceremony and celebration and joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we know it culminated with his being seated at the right hand of his Father and the angels in heaven worshiping. Now, there are several very wonderful blessings that we can derive on account of the ascension of Jesus in his glorified body to sit next to his Father in heaven. Let me just give you three or four of them. First, because he ascended and is seated there, he has become our great high priest. It may not mean much to us since we are unfamiliar with the Jewish system of sacrifice and offering, and the kind of priesthood some of us are familiar with doesn't involve animal sacrifice. But a Jewish priest never sat down after making a sacrifice or an offering. He never sat down because his work was never done. When Jesus sat down, it signified that there was no more offering, no more sacrifice in order for you to have a relationship with God. The writer to the Hebrews put it like this. It's in Hebrews 10, 12. He said, but this man, referring to Jesus in his ministry as the high priest, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And, and that is a tremendously symbolic act in the Jewish mind. Jesus, the great high priest, offering the sacrifice, which he was also the sacrifice, comes to heaven, sits down, no more sacrifice, no more offering for sin. Jesus ended the sacrifices that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden so that man might have access to God. The way into the presence of God is now open to all by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, seated there in his glorified body, Jesus has become our mediator. Hebrews 7.25 reads, therefore he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The word able stresses his innate power to achieve what he has willed to do. He is able to save, and that encompasses all the aspects of biblical salvation. His election of you, your justification, your sanctification, your ultimate glorification. The writer there says Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Now sometimes you'll hear an evangelist uh, use a little play on words here and they'll say Jesus is able to save you from the guttermost. <laughs> You never heard that? Ah, Riverdale. <laughs> no, it's, it's kind of cute, you know, and, and because people, you're always trying to, you know, people and, and, and you know what I found though, this is way off the subject, but I found that people who are in the guttermost, they know they need to be saved. I mean, you don't have too much trouble with people who are laying in the gutter saying, you know, you need some help. Yeah, you're right. It's people who have generally a decent life. They think, hey, I'm getting by. I'm mowing my lawn while you're going to church. You know, I got everything under control. They don't think they need God. I remember one time 
I've probably told you this story a hundred times, but that's what you get when you've been a pastor for 20 years. You only have so many stories, you know. So anyway, uh, I, I was uh, a title insurance salesman and, and you know, everybody's talking about being a Christian and one day I was with this uh, client of mine in his office and he said, hey, he goes, uh, let me ask you a question. And I go, okay, and he goes, he goes um, before you became a Christian, were you a heroin addict? I go, I go, no, I never touched that. So I did all these other kind of, you know, drugs, but you know, I don't think I was you know, really you know, in the gutter or anything. He goes, how about alcohol? I go, well, I abused alcohol, but you know, I wasn't like, you know, the, how about this, how about that? And, he, he, and I said, finally, what are you talking about? He says, you know, the only time I ever hear people talk about becoming a Christian is people who are in the gutter. And he goes, I can understand why a person like that needs religion, because they, they can't make it on their own. But I, I, he said, I don't understand why normal people would give their lives to Jesus Christ. And it's very interesting, you know. So a lot of times we want to find this testimony, this really wild testimony. I mean, I was so far down, I was looking up, you know, or whatever, and I don't know. And, and you know, I was lower than an ant. And, uh, and, and, and those are great testimonies. If that's your testimony, praise the Lord that he's able to save you from the guttermost. But you, you need to be saved regardless. But really, that's not even what this means. And, and uh, the word, <laughs> well, it isn't, but you know. The phrase doesn't look back, it looks forward. The word uttermost is from two words that mean all and complete. What it means is that you're gonna arrive at your final destiny, spiritually mature, whole, and complete. Jesus has the power to save you all the way to the end and complete what he's begun in you. And then it says he ever lives to make intercession for you in heaven. And that means that whatever's going on in your life, Jesus is praying for you about it. And you can believe that his father answers his prayers. If there's one person whose prayers are always answered, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I think sometimes my prayers aren't being answered. A lot of times it's because I'm asking to fulfill my own lusts and I don't really understand the full situation. Another reason your prayers might be hindered, guys, is that you're not living with your wife in an understanding way and God's not really listening to your prayers. There's a scripture about that. There's four or five reasons why your prayers might not be answered. But Jesus has none of those problems. He's praying for me right now. He's praying for you. And so you can be assured that his work is coming to completion in your life. And this is all a part of him being seated at the right hand of the Father. And third, seated in heaven, Jesus is your advocate. First John 2, 1 says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, and it should be when, of course, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now John uses a different metaphor. He's talking about a courtroom where there is a judge, a prosecuting attorney, and an advocate, and you're on trial. And basically the scene is you're a Christian, but you still find yourself struggling with the flesh and you fall into sin. Now the devil who tempted you to sin, he's also the prosecutor. It's kind of like entrapment, really, is what it is. He, he, you know, he, he entraps you to sin, and then he goes and he, he tries to destroy you in front of God. And, and he goes on and on and on, and, and you know, he's a, not the kind of attorney you want to be up against, really. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, you look over, and your advocate 
is the son of God, Jesus Christ. So he's got an in with the judge for one thing. But beyond that, because God is just and he, he wouldn't do it just for that reason, he's died for you. And I don't know that he even needs to say anything. I think probably, you know, you see this scene in heaven with the devil talking to God and all that happened with Job. I kind of think that if the devil ever comes before God and he's, maybe he's talking to the Lord about me and saying, you know, Gene this and Gene that, that's all true. I mean, there's undeniably true. And then he's listening and listening and listening and then the father looks over and he sees the son and he says, acquitted because Jesus died for me. And the Bible says, John also says, if, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. And that, this is another ministry Jesus has now that he has ascended into heaven. And then fourth, because he is seated in heaven at the Father's right hand, he is the sovereign Lord of the universe who is returning to finish the work of redeeming the whole earth. Philippians tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and so when I look at the world, you know, I do these prophecy updates every week and people are freaked out. They, what are we gonna do? Nukes are starting to fly all over the place. They're gonna hit Lamore first, you know they are. You know, I mean, everybody's, ah! Let's build a shelter under the church. Man, let's stand on the roof and catch one of those things as it comes by. I mean, let's go. But, uh, you know, the, the thing you need to remember is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and they, they're not in a war room situation trying to, what's going on in Iraq? You know, I mean, they know. It's under control. And, and he's poised to return. Uh, now, one author put it like this. We're talking about the ascension of Jesus and what it means to us. One author said this. In his incarnation, Jesus was God with us. In his crucifixion, Jesus was God as us. In his ascension, Jesus is God for us. I love that. Jesus ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is for us. If God is for you, who can be against you? Well, it seems like everybody and everything sometimes, and that's why we need this reminder that our Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says that we, spiritually speaking, are seated there with him. That means that whatever is true of him and whatever is available to him is also true of us and available to us, spiritually speaking. And that brings us to verses 10 through 12 where we see Jesus ascended, sending his spiritual body throughout the earth. This idea that believers on earth are Jesus' body is all through the New Testament. You know that if you're a Christian. For example, Ephesians 5, verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Of course, it's a metaphor, but it's more than that because there is a real mystical or spiritual connection between us and Jesus and between every believer. He is the head. We, as his members, do what he directs us to do. Instead of Jesus being in one place at one time, as it were, he can now be anywhere and everywhere a believer finds him or herself. The disciples on the Mount of Olives didn't understand this. They needed a little prodding just to leave and go back to Jerusalem. There they would come to understand that they were now Christ's body on the earth. They would establish the church and, and give it its early structure. 
and, and, and start to accomplish on earth what Jesus intended for his body to do. And so in verse 10, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now Jesus had told them to go and to wait, not to stay and wait, and they hesitated. I probably would have too. That's a pretty incredible thing to watch somebody lift off and just kind of float into heaven and be received by a cloud. That's something to look at. But Jesus told them, go and wait, but they were staying there. How long do you suppose they might have stayed there? I mean, really, how long would you have, I would have waited a long time probably. I would have camped out there. I would have bought property there. I mean, you know, that, there's just something about that. The words here indicate that they thought they were losing Jesus forever. The kind of gazing that they were doing indicates a, a sense of loss. After all, too, the cloud was receding with him in it. We don't really recognize this immediately because we're not Jews and we're not that familiar with some of this symbolism. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, there's a passage in chapter 10 there where the cloud departed from the temple and when it did, it was a sign of God's judgment of his removing his presence. So when you have Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of glory, the Son of God, and he's headed, for, you know, he's leaving the earth, and God's cloud, you know, the Shekinah is there, and it is pulling back as well, you might have a little hesitation as a Jew. Does this mean that the glory has departed? Did we fail in some way? They didn't understand yet that in just a few more days, Another phenomena was gonna take place, not a cloud, but a rushing mighty wind was going to fall upon them from heaven. Cloven tongues of fire were going to be over them and they were going to start something brand new. The Lord in his love therefore sent messengers to reinforce his words, these two men in white. And by the way, isn't it kind and considerate of Jesus to reinforce his words to you? He shouldn't have to do it, but he does because he knows that we're weak and we're frail. We have the Bible, we have the word of God, but it needs to be reinforced. We need to hear it read. We need to hear it taught. We need to receive it all the time. We need to study it and memorize it and, all, and in all these different ways have it reinforced to us because we are weak and frail and, and though we believe it and want to believe it, we're those people, all of us, who say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so what a joy it is for the Lord to give us so many wonderful ways in which the word of God can be reinforced in our life. And really, when, a, when trouble comes, when a trial comes, when suffering comes, uh, even on the other end of the spectrum, when blessing comes, we need to be reinforced by the word of God to put it into its proper perspective. I was watching some of the funeral for uh, President Ford last week, and uh, I think it was the funeral in Washington at the uh, National Cathedral, where they would read the scripture and then they would say, this is the word of the Lord. And of course, you know, it, obviously it's the Bible and this is the word of the Lord. But it, I think it has a greater sense and the idea that, like this morning, for example, we're here 
and we're studying the book of Acts, and it's about the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's these you know, four verses, nine through 12. And, and you can think, well now, I, I've got this problem or that problem or this is what the issue is in my life and I don't really, you know, why aren't we doing a topical study on the issues that really affect my life? Uh, that's what I need right now. And I think what the Lord would say to all of us all the time is, this is the word of the Lord. God knows everything about us, knows where you are, uh, you don't need GPS tracking, you know, Jesus tracking. There's a guy who's invented GPS shoes, by the way, so that you can know where you are as long as you have your shoes on all over the world. Anyway, the Lord knows who you are, where you are, what church you go to, what radio program you're gonna be listening to, all of these interactions, and so, if a, and so I think we should approach this from now on, if we don't already, as this is the word of the Lord. Whatever I'm going through, God can speak to me through his word, any part of his word, why? Because it ought to all be about Jesus. And Jesus is what I need in whatever it is I'm going through, personal, marriage, material, job, whatever it is, I need a greater vision of who Jesus Christ is and what he might be doing to lead and guide me and to perfect me. And I can get that out of any passage of scripture that focuses attention, my attention, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if I'm going through a personal problem, I come to church and I see we're studying church government I shouldn't get discouraged. I should think that I'm going to see Jesus Christ there and, and that it's going to somehow impact my life. And through the ministry of God's spirit within and among us, it can. And so what a, what a kind and generous Lord we have that no matter where we open in his word, as long as he remains our focus and our theme, he speaks to us from it. As I said, I was going to title this message, Men in White. These two men are commonly considered angels, and they may have been angels. I rather like to think they were Moses and Elijah. Once before on a mount, when Jesus was transfigured, Moses and Elijah appeared with him. And not only that, we remember that it was Luke who wrote Acts, Earlier in his gospel, in part one, or the beginning of what he began to write, he said this about Moses and Elijah when they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is from Luke 9, verse 31. They appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word for decease is the word exodus. And that means they spoke of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so it seems fitting that they were the ones who also appeared on the Mount of Olives because they had talked with Jesus about exactly what was going to take place. Whether they were Moses and Elijah or not is not that critical, but I think it's kind of cool. Acts verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter one, who also said, men of Galilee, why are you standing gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. They could have called them apostles and, and that would have made sense, right? You apostles who've been commissioned by Jesus Christ. Instead, they address them as the men from Galilee. 
They were all from Galilee for sure, but why call them by their geographic designation? Well, for one thing, it emphasized that they were going to remain on the earth as they knew it. Remember these guys always were concerned about their place in the kingdom of God. Where were they going to be in the hierarchy of Jesus ruling Jerusalem and ruling the world from Jerusalem. And so when these two glorious strangers appear and say, men of Galilee, it keeps them on the earth where Jesus told them that they were going to be anyway. And it reminded them that they were from Galilee in Jerusalem, they would go from there to Judea and Samaria and then to the othermost parts of the earth. They were grounded as it were. Jesus was taken up but they would be grounded. Another thing it emphasizes is that Jesus could and would use the most ordinary and even despised individuals to serve him. Later in the book of Acts, we'll see them called Galileans by the religious leaders as an insult. You know, if you were a smart Pharisee or a scribe, a, an educated religious individual or an educated individual of any kind, and this fisherman from Galilee, Peter, is talking to you about the Bible? I mean, they, they, it's, it's an insult. They consider themselves far superior to these Galileans. By the way, you know, God does, he, he, God raises up men and women in all walks of life. Uh, there, you know, there are really smart people who are Christians, scientists, philosophers, theologians. Uh, we're not them. Uh, and, and we're not even as smart as we think sometimes. And I, if you think you're smart, go take the CBEST test without studying for it. That's that test people take to become substitute teachers. About 90% of the people fail the first 18 times they take it, you know, and, and, and it just, so, you know, we always like to think we're smarter than we are, but God just uses the simple things. He uses the foolish things, he says. And it's better to just say, yeah, Lord, I'm kind of a foolish thing. I, I just am, I'm just a person. This is my background, this is my education. Can you use that? And, and uh, you know, people, they, they, they put us down because we don't have all the things that the world thinks that we should have, but some of these people that are in the world that don't know the Lord, they're just ignorant of spiritual truth. And so don't be overwhelmed, don't be overcome because you're some man or woman from Galilee. You're from Podunk, USA, without very much education, and, and think that because people are using their big, highfalutin words that they're smarter than you. Anybody who's been a Christian for 10 seconds knows more than the smartest person on earth who doesn't know Christ, because they know how to get to heaven, and ultimately, that's what's going to matter. In verse 12, First of all, these two men white and testify that Jesus was indeed taken into heaven and they immediately mention that the Lord will return. And that's a big sweeping statement to let them and us know that everything is under control. This is not plan B. You know, J Jesus didn't go to heaven to have a council and figure out what are we gonna do? Do we need to send more troops or what? You know, it's nothing like that. This is all part of the plan. Verse 12 now, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. The rabbis had determined just how far you could walk on the Sabbath and not violate God's law. I wonder if they had those little belt counters 
rabbi counter, you know, that, because you can only go, I think, about a half a mile on the Sabbath. Why mention this? I don't know, but in Exodus chapter 16, verse 29, you read that on the Sabbath, you are to remain in your place and not go out. And so it's, it's just kind of another indicator of what Jesus had told them. Stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Hang out, everything is going to be fine. They didn't understand it yet, but the Lord was going to use them as his body on the earth. The Holy Spirit was with them. He was already in them. He would shortly come upon them and they would begin to be witnesses to the Lord. And as we've said and will say many times, they would begin in Jerusalem, then spread out to Judea and Samaria, and then throughout their lifetimes and throughout the history of the world up until today, throughout the whole earth. Thousands upon thousands would get saved in their lifetimes. After these 11 died and went home to be with the Lord, multiplied millions more would be saved and yet will be saved. One of the greatest times of revival in the history of the world will be during the Great Tribulation. Now, I don't recommend you hang around here for it if you're an unbeliever, uh, but it will be a time of incredible uh, mass evangelism. It's as if Jesus were still physically on the earth, but everywhere at once. Wherever a believer is, there is the Lord continuing both to do and to teach. You know, we love that scripture that says where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst in terms of knowing that Jesus is with us and present in our midst, ministering to us. But we also have to have a sense that wherever I am, wherever you are, there is Jesus for an unbeliever. It is his physical presence on the earth in and through our witness and testimony that is multiplying the ministry that he had and bringing souls to Christ. Now one day the Lord will return to remove his body from the earth. It's not his second coming, it's the rapture of the church and it occurs before the tribulation on earth and before his second coming. I would pose one question, whether you are born again or yet unsaved, and it is this. Are you functioning in the body of Jesus Christ on earth? Well, if you're a believer, sure, you are a member of his body. It's, it's part of the definition. But you still can ask, are you functioning? The other day I sat in one position for too long, a little bit too far forward on my chair while I was doing some studying on the computer. And when I stood up, I kind of fell over to the left side because my leg and foot had fallen asleep. Don't you hate that? I mean, and then you think, okay, is this the end? I'm coming, Mabel, or whatever, you know, and stuff. But, and, and, and then you're like trying to shake your leg and you're hopping around and you're thinking, man, wh when is this circulation? And, you know, why don't they study this, you know, and stuff and figure that. And finally, you're able to, you know, get back to normal. That part of your body fell asleep because it was in the wrong position and it wasn't doing anything. A lot of believers, they're body parts that have fallen asleep. They're either not part of a local body of believers or if they are, they're not really functioning in it, serving their risen and ascended Lord. And this is a personal thing for each one of us. No matter how much we think we're already serving God, 
We may not be serving him in the capacity that he has determined. We may need to alter uh, some of our ideas. You know, there's nothing easier in the Christian life than to get in a rut, than to get stuck saying, okay, this is what I do, that's all I do, that's all I will ever do. And I just don't really think that's very healthy, spiritually speaking. Each of us needs to get alone with the Lord and say, okay, am I a part of a local fellowship? We're here at Calvary Chapel. Am I really a part, a member of the body of Christ at Calvary Chapel of Hanford? What do I do there to serve others or where am I serving the Lord? And is there something more or different or other that the Lord is calling me to do? And if, if I can spend time with the Lord and if the answer is always, ah, you're fine, you're doing everything you're supposed to do, I can't think of another thing, then you need to spend more time with the Lord. We're not hearing from him because the Lord is always wanting to press us forward to new places where we have to trust him to fill us and come upon us to do the ministry. And so we ought to, if you're wondering, then just look back on, you know, people have resolutions. First look back and say, was I pressed forward into anything new in 2006? Did I take new steps of faith? Am I involved in anything different than I've ever done in my life before? It could be a very small thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, world evangelism. I mean, it just, but am I really growing as a Christian in the body of Christ? Because this is God's desire for us. If you've not been born again, then you're not a member of this marvelous spiritual body of Jesus on the earth. And quite frankly, when he returns to rapture his body, you are going to be left behind because he's only coming for Christians. He's coming for all Christians, but only Christians to remove them from the earth before all hell breaks loose on planet earth. And if you think it's scary now talking about the fact that Ahmadinejad might press a button, hey, I mean, just read Revelation 6 through 19 before bed and see what kind of nightmares you have from that. I mean, there's some things that are gonna happen. Demons are gonna be let loose on the earth that look like locusts who are gonna uh, torment men for a certain period of time. People are gonna try and kill themselves and they won't be able to do it. Chew on that. I'm telling you, you do not wanna be here for that. And you know, people glibly say, well, if those things start to happen, then I'll know it's true and I'll turn to the Lord. And it's been said for centuries, if you can't live for the Lord now, how do you think you're gonna die for him then? I mean, it's gonna be bad, really, really bad. Worse than anything Hollywood could even uh, you know, dream of. It's, it's incredible. Don't be asleep. If you're a Christian, Spend time with the Lord in private. Ask him what you are to be doing in his body on the earth and then do it, trusting that his power will be there. And if you're not a Christian, don't be left behind. Admit you're a sinner. Call upon him as your savior. Remember, he is able to save you to the uttermost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. As always, they are wonderful, awesome, you alone, Lord, could say these things and back them up with your reality and with your power. And I pray, first of all, for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, that 
in a beautiful way, we would just spend time with you and see what it is you want us to do this year coming up. Uh, these next few days, weeks, or months, Lord, and, and make whatever adjustments are necessary so that we can sense and feel your presence in our lives again. Help us to block in that time, Lord, to, to just be alone with you and to hear from you, to wait upon you and attend to your voice. Lord, if there's any here this morning that don't know you, they've never been born again, bring them forward as the service closes, Lord. Let them talk to the guys that are here and give their hearts to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Let's stand. We live in interesting times. Uh, Just really every day get up and just ask the Lord to use you and see where that leads. And then when doors open up, don't be afraid to walk through them trust that the Lord will give you the words to speak. If you're a Christian, you already know more than the unbeliever that you're talking to. And yeah, they might have some specific questions about the, you know, evolution or some of these apologetic issues. And I think the best thing that you can remember is what the blind man who had been uh, ministered to by Jesus said because they were trying to get him to denounce the Lord. And he finally said, look, all I know is that I was blind and now I see. And so you want answers to these deeper questions, I think I can find somebody who can answer them. There's probably a philosopher, a theologian, a scientist, a mathematician who could go head to head with you on this. But in the meantime, I was blind, spiritually speaking, lost on my way to hell. My marriage was going down the tubes. My, my whole life was nothing. And then Jesus saved me and you need that. And and that's really, as J. Vernon McGee would say, where the rubber meets the road. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.